Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode of The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Prudential procrastination. We all do it, but there are certain things that when you push them off actually get harder to do. Losing weight, quitting smoking, or saving for retirement. It turns out our brains are hardwired to procrastinate. It's one of the human behaviors that can get in the way of planning your financial future. So don't delay. Learn more at bringyourchallenges.com. Prudential, bring your challenges. Episode 193 of The Bowery Boys the wild story of St. Mark's Place. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And for today's episode, some may call it East 8th Street, but the cool kids call it St. Mark's Place, one of the most exciting and interesting streets in New York City, I think. I mean, the story is just that crazy. The reason I find it so entertaining is because it includes some of the great names of early New York, including colonial era New York City, to the 1970s and 1980s figures of punk and new wave music. So we're going to be going in this story from the wife of Alexander Hamilton to Cindy Lauper. <laughs> I wish we could do that in every show. <laughs> I know. I do. I like the whiplash. And this show is going to give us a lot of whiplash, but we are harnessed and ready. Whiplash, because in many ways, this is taking us back to our college days, um, as indeed St. Mark's Place is, I think, still a sort of mecca for college students in search of everything from cheap falafel sandwiches to a decent bong. <laughs> this is also a great example of New York's uncanny ability to reuse buildings. Most of the buildings that we're going to talk about in this story date almost 200 years ago, some of the earliest ones, and many of them are still intact, but they are bursting at the seams with unusual history. <laughs> some are just bursting at the seams with other things as well. <laughs> yeah. I just feel that there's something that's still sort of stubbornly grungy mm -hmm. about St. Mark's Place. It's a little bit of an island. So from Kleine Deutschland to club kids to coffee shops, join us as we party on St. Mark's Place. So, Tom, how are you going to situate the subject here? Because St. Mark's Place, although it's only three blocks long, right. has over 300 years of history. Although we're only talking about three blocks, Greg, we have tackled a rather ambitious subject, mm -hmm. I would argue. So, first, let's just put us on the map, okay? St. Mark's Place is the name for the part of what would otherwise be East 8th Street that runs from 3rd Avenue at Astor Place in Cooper Union east to Avenue A, where it hits Tompkins Square Park. This is a very vibrant three-block stretch, so between 3rd and 2nd, 2nd and 1st and 1st and A. 
There are residential tenements. There are old townhouses. There, at least two of those blocks have a lot of stores on the ground floor, restaurants and bars. Throughout the late afternoon and evening hours and late into night, it's usually packed with a sort of wild mix of students and revelers and merrymakers and and some residents trying to get through. <laughs> so these three blocks, though, I would argue are, are different. I think that we're going to spend most yes. of the show talking about the first block, the westernmost block. Between 3rd and 2nd Avenue. Yeah. Right. So really from like Cooper Union, 3rd Avenue over to 2nd Avenue. That's where some of the oldest structures are still standing. That block I'm going to call sort of the hot mess, right? Because that's the, it's the busiest sidewalks, cheapest food, street market. You know, you've got clothing, mm-hmm. sort of knockoff Ray-Bans for sale. Lots uh, of le- wigs and... Leftover punky, costumey <laughs> type things that you can pick up on the streets. Curious accessories of all types. Of all glass types, yes. <laughs> Now, it's curious that we don't call it 8th Street because it parallels, of course, the historic church that's just a couple blocks north, St. Mark's on the Bowery. Which is located at 2nd Avenue and 10th Street, or the convergence of 10th Street, 2nd Avenue, and Stuyvesant Street. Oh, you just dropped the name Stuyvesant. So we are (laughs) going to begin with Peter here, correct? Peter Stuyvesant, of course, served as the director general of New Amsterdam for the late Dutch period, starting in 1647. And it was under his watch that the English would take over the control of the settlement in 1664 and, of course, rename New Amsterdam New York. Thirteen years before the English would take over New York, Stuyvesant would purchase some big parcels of land that were outside north of the city limits. These would be farmlands that were sectioned off, parceled off, called Bouwerie number mm-hmm. one and Bouwerie number two. And he didn't have all of Bouwerie number two, but he had all of Bouwerie number one. Okay. Bouwerie. That, that's a... <laughs> Bouwerie, yes, which of course gave us the word Bowery. So let's continue to just say Bowery, yes. Okay. Well, I'd just like to throw in a little Dutch. Okay. <laughs> Just you wait, I've got a few languages coming up here that I'm going to butcher, I'm sure. So the lane that separated the first and second farms was Stuyvesant Street. And it was there that the family would build a chapel. And on this farmland, you know, they build lots of other things, a large farm and houses and plant orchards and fields. After the English takeover, he would go back to Amsterdam to sort of explain himself, but then he'd come (laughs) back to New York and be allowed to live here, and generations of Stuyvesants would live here on these properties. Yeah, he chose to be a New Yorker. And people started living in areas around his farm, Uh, and as the city would grow in the 1700s, 1780s, the family decided to start parceling off at least part of this property because, well, they were a little bit land poor, and what people were doing at the time in the city was, you know, they had these huge parcels of land starting to subdivide it up a little bit and sell it off. Rich families who were living down in the city were starting to look a bit farther away from the the mess of the ports and the commerce and from the disease, of course, that occasionally came with it. So it was in 1787 when Petrus, who was Peter Stuyvesant's great-great-grandson, laid out a grid of streets on this family property that is in today's East Village. With intentions to sell the properties, but within his own little grid here. Right. Right. Yes, and he named the avenues after his daughters. Those were Judith, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Cornelia. And the streets were named for the men in the family. Those were Tonbrook, Winthrop, Gerard, Governor, Peter, Stuyvesant, Nicholas William, and Verplunk. You mentioned Stuyvesant Street, yes, which is still there, but of course none of those other streets. We don't have a Judith Street anymore. No Judith. But we have a Stuyvesant Street. So is this from that original grid? Stuyvesant is from the original grid. It survived what happened after the Commissioner's Plan of 1811 was adopted, which famously imposed a grid system of avenues, north and south, and streets, east and west, onto the island of Manhattan, most of it north of what is today's Houston Street. But in areas where there were existing grid systems in place, there were some exceptions made. They didn't really want to keep any of Stuyvesant's grid plan because it kind of got in the way. But St. Mark's Church in the Bowery had been completed in 1799, and they wouldn't be able to move it. They were moving houses and paying off 
owners, you know, who lived in different structures, if the place had to be ripped down or, you know, they, they had to value the land. They also had to figure out the land value relative to where it fit on the new grid. Can you imagine? It must have been very confusing. <laughs> but they couldn't have moved it because there's also vaults in the ground. Right. right. Including Peter Stuyvesant, who was buried at the chapel, which had then been replaced by this church. We refer to this plan as the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like this was imposed automatically no, right away. No. It, it would take years right. to mark these streets out and to actually build them. And even decades to develop them the further up the island. Even here in today's East Village, 2nd Avenue would not be ready to go until 1816, and 8th Streets to 12th Streets would not be ready until 1826. So 8th Street, the which we are focusing on today did not actually exist until the 1820s. It wasn't ready to go and ready for development until 1826. Okay. So did people just come along and say, well, let's start building our houses on this street? I mean, there's, you know, there's developments happening parallel around the area. So how were these specifically sold to people? Well, there were very ritzy developments that were happening just a little bit west of here, right? In today's NoHo area along... Lafayette and Great Jones Street, Bond Street, right. Bond Street and Washington Square area. Well, in fact, it took a real estate tycoon who had just emigrated to New York from, well, New Jersey, but I mean, he came from Great Britain, <laughs> yeah. a man named Thomas Davis. And he, he eyed you know, the success of other developers in these, in these other upscale neighborhoods, and he wanted to do the same thing. So in 1831, he bought up land along 8th Street between 3rd and 2nd Avenues. He bought it from the Stuyvesant family, and he constructed rows of federal-style dwellings on both sides of the street that were very nice and very upscale, but to give it a little bit more cachet, he did two things. He made them a little bit wider and deeper. So these were 26 feet wide instead of the normal 20 to 25 feet. It wasn't just that. He did something else. He, he gave the street its own name. East 8th Street just didn't sound fancy enough for his development. So he lobbied for and was able to change the name of his blocks to St. Mark's Place and to start the numbering system anew at Astor Place. But the numbers started with one on the south side and the odd numbers on the south and the even numbers on the north running east. There are three buildings on that block that still exist today from this era, from the 1830s. One that you will encounter immediately as you're strolling from Astor Place east on St. Mark's is number four St. Mark's Place. So on the south side of the street, it's a very pretty Federalist style brick-faced residence that was constructed by Davis and sold in 1833 to Colonel Alexander Hamilton, the son of the great Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton's son bought the property in, the, in 1833 for $15,500, which seems like it must have been a lot of money. It wasn't just for Colonel Alexander and his wife, Eliza. It was also the residence of his mother and the, the widow of Alexander Hamilton, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, and also her daughter, Eliza Hamilton Holly, and her husband. So it was sort of the Hamilton family house. They paid for this, this $15,000, by selling Hamilton Grange back to Davis, to the developer, for $25,000. So the old Hamilton residence, the famous one, is sold for them to move into this place, onto St. Mark's Place. And they would live here for nine years until 1842. There are a couple others here on the block, number 25 St. Mark's Place, and also the Daniel Leroy House at 20 St. Mark's Place. He was married to Elizabeth Fish, bringing him into the Fish and the Stuyvesant families. So what you had here is you had very famous New York families living side by side in this new sort of ritzy enclave. You had the Fish, the Stuyvesants, the Hamilton. Well, the, the upper crust quote-unquote, people of quality all lived together on these extravagant blocks. Yes, side by side, at least for the 1830s and 1840s. But things were changing in the 1850s, as we've talked about in many different shows, including uh, the most recently in the Orchard Street show, because the city was changing. The city was exploding with new arrivals, new immigrants, and wealthier families at the same time were starting to move farther north. Many of these residences at that point would end up getting subdivided into boarding houses 
And in the 1840s and 1850s, with the Irish fleeing the potato famine, they would arrive and mostly settle in today's Lower East Side, which had the effect of pushing many of the Germans who had already settled there just perhaps a decade or two before them, pushing them a bit farther north, just straight north into today's East Village, creating this new neighborhood that would become known as Little Germany or Klein Deutschland. They would be from various religions. They would be Jewish, Catholic, Protestants, some no religion. And they were from different regions. I mean, we say Germany, but in, right. you know, in the mid-19th century, Germany as we know it didn't exactly exist. So, But they had similar language and there were similar cultural backgrounds, especially music, food, and most importantly, it was good to stick together, especially in a city that didn't like immigrants a lot in the mid-19th century. The German population of, of New York was actually the third largest of any city in the world, including wow. cities in the area of Germany. As a result, there was an incredible amount of new development along St. Mark's Place on, on the avenues, second and third avenues, completely changing the entire culture of the place. So when you walk down St. Mark's Place today, mm -hmm. so you know, you're walking past the yogurt shops and the Chipotle and whatever. Many of those buildings, like that German footprint is still very much present in a lot of those buildings, but you just kind of have to look for it. You have to look above the street signs, you know? Because I think that there is still some German on those facades, yeah. right? So a couple examples that I'll present to you. At 19 St. Mark's Place, that is where the Chipotle is. I'll call it the Chipotle building just so mm. you can we can laugh about that and it's visual. It was a structure built for the Aryan Society, a German music society formed, quote, for the perpetuation of love for some of the characteristic elements of German civilization, unquote. So the, the symbol of the Aryan Society was a dolphin. Hmm. So one quote that I found from the New York Times from 1874 uh, was talking about one of the meetings that they were having. They had these lively carnivals, plays that went on, of course, like music until all hours of the evening. And this is just general German appreciation. German appreciation of, of the People are probably homesick. Absolutely. I mean, this was a very popular organization. According to the New York Times, quote, one of the rules adopted by the society was that every gentleman on entering the hall, should wear the regulation hat, a figure of a dolphin of this society, during the entertainment. As this rule was strictly adhered to, the hall presented a novel sight. <laughs> Unquote. Um, they were giving their seal of approval. Now, by the 1880s here, some Germans were actually moving to other neighborhoods, including, of course, Yorkville, which would greatly expand in the preceding decades. And Yorkville is on the Upper East Side. Right. In like the 80s, 90s. Well, in fact, Arion actually moved uptown also in 1880 onto 59th Street and Park Avenue, turning that old, their old office, so the old Arian Society here, was turned into a ballroom called Arlington Hall. That building is still there today. Right. You had foreshadowed, I think, with a burrito, with Chipotle. <laughs> yes. Which we'll get back to. You know, an organically grown burrito. Now let's cross St. Mark's Place to the south side, to 12 St. Mark's Place, to a building that was constructed in 1885, Hall, the headquarters for the German-American Shooting Society. Today, it's called Schutzen? Schutzen. It's a German word, but it's, I believe it's pronounced Schutzen. Schutzen Hall, and it's a <laughs> shooting society. That's a fortuitous society. <laughs> name for a shooting society. Now, if you're walking down the street, it's, today it's a Latin vegan restaurant, but if you look above mm. th uh, the sign, you'll see some of the original German language that's written upon the building. It's a glorious building. Now, there were 12 different shooting societies inside Schutzen Hall. In the basement, there was a shooting gallery as well as a bowling alley. Hmm. Now, every year out in Queens, there would be the annual Schutzenfest, <laughs> which was a national competition in Glendale, Queens. So we have German appreciation, shooting, bowling, and we're in the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, so these two buildings are very indicative of life on St. Mark's Place. And if you just experiment walking around the East Village mm -hmm. sometime and look for these very specific kind of buildings that were built mostly for the purposes of German immigrants or German-related activities um, that were in Renaissance revival style, Romanesque revival style. You know, anything from, for instance, the Puck Building, which was built in 
1885 down on Houston to Webster Hall, which was built the next year. And that is up on 11th Street. And that was also German owned. But these buildings here along St. Mark's that you're talking about, that were not these Federalist-style townhouses that had been built, uh, say, 50 or 60 years before. These new buildings built by German designers, don't they have more of a tenement or apartment building style? Yeah, I mean, that was what was the most popular building style of this, of this time, even though proper apartment buildings were being built. They were still doing tenements. All of this changes really dramatically, unfortunately, in 1904 with the sinking of the General Slocum steamship on June 15th, 1904. This was a devastating, unthinkable disaster that killed 1,021 people, mostly women and children. We have a Bowery Boys podcast on this terrible event in New York City history, which you can check out if you want more information on that. But the essential effect of this is that with this terrible loss of life, most of the Germans here in Klarna Deutschland, fled this neighborhood and went to others outside of the other boroughs into Yorkville. It was just too painful to stay around because most of the deceased were actually from this neighborhood. Yeah, they were from this neighborhood. Most of them lived here. The Germans that did remain here then fled after World War I because, of course, crackdowns of political organizations that were associated with Germans. There was all that anti-German sentiment. At that time, then, thousands of other new immigrants, Jewish immigrants mostly, and a lot of them Polish, moved in, filled the void of these buildings. But as a result of all this sort of movement and chaos and everything, a lot of the sort of respectability of some of these buildings deteriorates a little bit. So Arlington Hall. The the German Appreciation Building. Right, exactly. The Chipotle building. The Chipotle. So a senseless and kind of renowned act of violence occurred here on January 9th, 1914, involving one of the most powerful gangsters of the day. I'm about to describe to you what was essentially a major gunfight here on oh, St. Mark's Place. Some action. The gangster that I'm talking about, his name was Dopey Benny. They called him Dopey due to a condition that made his eyes look a little sleepy. But here's the thing, Tom. Here's a picture of Mr. Dopey Benny. Today, mm-hmm. this, this, he would ha- get a modeling contract. <laughs> He's gaunt and has sort of sleepy eyes, his hair parted. He's dressed smartly. And that's just his mugshot. <laughs> but that's he'd get a contract. Yeah, that's but true. that's a but that's that's dopey. Back then, though, he was a he's a serial felon. He was no one wanted, you wanted to mess around with. So a major shootout occurred here, right in front of Arlington Hall, that resulted in the death not of a gang member, but they accidentally killed off a city official. So here's a clip from the New York Tribune from the following day, January 10th, 1914. Quote. The alleys and byways about Arlington Hall in St. Mark's Place between 2nd and 3rd Avenues echoed and re-echoed last night with a fuselage of revolver shots. There were shouts, curses, scampering of feet, and then the police reserves arrived and found Frederick Strauss, 65 years old, for 24 years a clerk in the Supreme Court, dead on the sidewalk. He was an innocent victim of a gang feud, unquote. So Strauss was actually on his way to a meeting on St. Mark's Place just a few doors down when he was caught in the crossfire between Dopey Benny's gang and two members of a rival gang, the Jimmy Kelly gang, and their names were Lenny and Dyke. Lenny and Dyke were sworn enemies of Dopey Benny. Back to the story, quote, When they spotted Lenny and Dyke, they opened fire from a dozen revolvers. Although taken by surprise, the Jimmy Kelly leaders wheeled about and returned the fire of their enemies with spirit, even though their aim was wild. For several minutes, the duel continued, revolvers spitting spitefully. So far as known, none of the gunmen were struck by the hail of bullets, but Strauss, white-haired and bent, reeled and fell lifeless on the streets, unquote. So in a genuine, insane gunfight here on St. Mark's Place in 1914. Definitely the character of the street, as you can imagine from this story, has changed. And that was right in front of the building on the sidewalk. Yeah, a bloody turn of affairs here. Shortly thereafter, Arlington Hall closed and became the Polish National Home, which you know reflected this new reality of, of right. a growing Polish presence here. The place was in fact called Polski Dom Harodowy, 
the name is crucial to something I'm going to mention in our next section. Oh, could I ask you to say it again, just to yes, perhaps sure. try to figure out what which part of this Polsky Dom Haradove? So th- this place would transform into one of the most influential music venues of the 1960s, and would be one of the places that would lead St. Mark's into a completely different direction. A spot of developing underground culture with figures that would make the members of the German shooting club flee the block in terror. And how this neighborhood, how this strip of blocks made that turn from culture to counterculture is a pretty fascinating story. We'll tackle that one after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Back to the show. And so, Tom, with that little musical introduction, we are entering the rock and roll era. I'm so ready. But first, I'm going to take us back to the 1870s and the elevated railway. Rock on, Tom. <laughs> I know. Talk about like derailing your, your <laughs> master outro. plan here. That's okay. We're getting to the music soon. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to say, because you left us with this kind of like cliffhanger of things kind of going downhill for the neighborhood. Yeah, a little bit. And we didn't mention in the last section that the neighborhood was served by a couple elevated railways. So they were really well served. When they took them down in the 1940s and 50s, because the second avenue uh, elevated was demolished in 42, and the third avenue was demolished in 1955. Well, that left this neighborhood. Maybe you've never noticed this, but today's East Village is not really the most convenient to get to by by the subway. I mean, sure, you have the Astor Place line and you have things on Broadway, but as you get deeper and deeper in, you know, it's just not really very well served. But we have the second avenue... So- Oh, right. right. That's yeah. in like... Not happening. It's not happening. <laughs> it's not happening for many years. But in the 40s and 50s, developers were trying to shake off that concern and lure people into the neighborhood by inventing a new name for the neighborhood. Because up until this point, the whole area was called the East Side and the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. But the Lower East Side had really taken on this connotation of immigrants and rundown tenements. So real estate developers in the 40s and 50s played around with a couple of new terms, largely working off the popularity of Greenwich Village and trying to associate it with uh, Greenwich Village, just as our friend Thomas Davis had done in the 1830s, trying to associate St. Mark's developments with Washington Square, Mm -hmm. calling this new neighborhood Village East or what stuck, the East Village, referring to the neighborhood that was east of Broadway from Houston up to 14th Street. Look, you'll still find an old-timer who refuses to call it East Village. As this old-timer <laughs> should, because it was it's another invention. But in the 50s, I don't think that calling it the East Village really worked out. It didn't initially have the result that these realtors were after. The, the rents continued to sink, as did the condition of many of the buildings. 
However, sinking rents did attract the eye of a cultural phenomenon that was happening over in the village just a couple blocks away. I'm speaking about the beat culture of the 1950s. Yeah, it would spill out quite dramatically into the east side here. Right. The Bohemians and beatniks were looking for more affordable places to live than the village, which was becoming more expensive. And they they could find lower rents over here in the east village. So it drew the likes of Kerouac and Ginsburg to the neighborhood. So we have beatniks moving in in the 1950s, right? I'm talking about the East Village, but specifically, let's talk about St. Mark's Place. Mm -hmm. And on a sort of macro level, then, what we have is beatniks followed by kind of counterculture waves um, and political activism and a wave of the hippies as well. Bohemians, yes. Bohemians. but, But we go from like beatnik to the hippies within a couple of decades. It goes from black turtleneck smoking to long hair and peace beads. And, you know, all joking aside, a lot of, like, activism and really important things were happening, and a lot of important things were being planned in some of the apartments right here, and the coffee shops and the restaurants and the performance spaces right here on St. Mark's Place. It was one of the most important places for counterculture in the 1960s. And you can see that in many of the buildings that are still there. You can see these waves of history and these movements and how they affected almost every building on the street. Let's go back to Alexander Hamilton's widow's house, shall we? The Hamilton Holly House at number four, St. Mark's Place. Mm -hmm. Remember that one? Yes. It's the south side of the street. It would eventually get landmarked, but not quite yet. And it had gone from housing politically and important families in the early 1800s to being subdivided into apartments in the later 19th century. For the first half of the 20th century, it was a store that sold musical instruments. And then in the 1950s and 60s, it became an experimental theater called the Tempo Playhouse and then the New Bowery Theater, where very important poetry performances were held. So you see that now we've moved into the beat generation. Mm -hmm. Then in 1967, it became Limbo. Limbo had actually opened a few years earlier down the block, but in 1967, it moved here into this space. It was a pioneering fashion boutique because Limbo basically invented the grungy, distressed clothing look. It popularized vintage clothing. I think St. Mark's is not given enough credit for actually being a kind of fashion capital. It's just that it popularized things that are, quote, vintage used, but it did popularize a certain look. And that look would sort of stick to the house, but take a slightly new form in 1975 when Limbo would close and trash in vaudeville a now legendary clothing store, would open, outfitting punks and musicians and artists and other nonconformists in the, in the neighborhood from 1975 till this very day. One of the anchors of the neighborhood. A leather anchor, yes, but an anchor nonetheless. <laughs> nonetheless. But just amazing that it's in the same building with the, uh, Eliza Schuyler once lived in this building and now 150 years later would be filled with feather boas and synthetic wigs. <laughs> and a lot of leather. And leather. And this shouldn't be confused with Manic Panic, which was the first punk boutique to open in the U.S. in 1977 at number 33 St. Mark's. By boutique, we're talking about hairstyle um, and makeup, great punky hair dyes that were available, nail polishes and such. Well, perfecting that truly like multicolored, multi-hued punk look. Started here in the neighborhood and now available throughout the country and online. But Greg Limbo, the store, the grungy store Limbo, Mm -hmm. opened in 1967, which is a big year on St. Mark's. A lot of really interesting and important things happened. We mentioned that the entire neighborhood was very important to counterculture and to political activism and to a new generation of activists who were kind of coming out of the beat generation and wanting to be more politically active. They were led by people like Abby and Anita Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, who formed a group called the Yippies, or the Youth International Party. They, they were an anti-war, anti-authoritarian youth party, and they relied heavily on amazing street theater and happenings and hijinks to get their point across. And they were headquartered on St. Mark's Place, but they performed everywhere. Right. Their headquarters, they were founded at number 30 St. Mark's Place by Abby and Anita Hoffman and by Jerry Rubin. But they did amazing stunts all over the city. One that I wanted to tell you about happened also in 1967 
On August 24th, Abby Hoffman and about a dozen other friends and yippies first stopped at the corner of 2nd Avenue and St. Mark's Place at the Gem Spa. Perhaps you've been to the Gem Spa? Oh, yeah. Gem Spa. You can get an egg cream there. Famous for its egg creams. That's been around since the 1920s. It hasn't been called Gem Spa since 1957 when it was named after the three wives of the two owners. (laughs) One of them's an ex-wife, but their name's (laughs) Gladys, Etta, and Miriam. Oh, interesting. So so the Yippies stopped at the Gem Spa. So they stopped at this at the Gem Spa on August 24th, and then they headed down to the New York Stock Exchange, where they had tipped off a couple reporters that they were going to pull off a beautiful little piece of street theater, or rather balcony theater, as this would take place on the balcony overlooking the trading floor. Mm. Here's a quote from the New York Times article the next day, headline, Hippies shower $1 bills on stock exchange floor. (laughs) Dollar bills thrown by a band of hippies fluttered down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange yesterday, disrupting the normal hectic trading pace. Stockbrokers, clerks, and runners turned and stared at the visitor's galley. A few smiled and blew kisses, but most jeered, shouted, pointed fingers, and shook their fists. Some clerks ran to pick up the bills. After a few minutes, security guards hustled the hippies out to cheers and applause from the floor. We just want to make a loving gesture to these people, one hippie who would not give his name said afterwards. They don't know what money is. They deal in stock certificates. So that was their piece of theater. They threw fistfuls of fake money from the visitor's gallery from the balcony above the stock floor down in front of waiting newsmen who captured the whole piece. Wow. There's a there's a photo right here mm-hmm. of the piece. And I do like this quote later in the article from a, quote, woman tourist from Warren, Ohio. I think they're nuts. <laughs> if you're looking for some pandemonium, you don't actually need to leave St. Mark's Place in 1967. Let's go back again to the Chipotle building, the Arion Society, the old Arlington Hall, now Polish National Home. Where we last bore witness to a shootout on the sidewalk. Yeah. And last bore witness to my poor pronunciation of Polski Dom Naradowy. Well, your Polish is getting better, by the way, as this episode continues. <laughs> well, if I, keep, if I keep speaking it, I'll be a native speaker. Who knows by the end? Well, in 1964, the building was sold to a new owner named Stanley Tolkien, who operated a bar downstairs simply called The Dom. Mm-hmm. So the oh, word right. dom is home. So it, he was also Polish. So just as a as a tribute to his own background, he took that name and then called it the dom. And this is in the sixties, nineteen sixty four. And this was downstairs. Keep in mind, this was an old. You know, it was Arlington Hall, so it had several rooms here, right? So he occupied the ground floor with this bar, the dom. In nineteen sixty six, Andy Warhol. Who we don't talk about enough on this podcast, Tom. No, we don't. We, don't. We, sh- we should do something about that, Greg. Well, he opened a series of art and glam nights upstairs called The Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which had film, light shows, and live music by bands like, most notably, The Velvet Underground. This would eventually morph uh, with a different owner, but the same feel, into a place famously known as the Electric Circus, one of the most pivotal music venues of the 1960s. So this went from a Polish-themed restaurant in the 1960s to a bar with Andy Warhol theme events to the Electric Circus, a club. A a psychedelic club. Let me quote from a book called Radical Rags, Fashion of the 60s, describing a typical evening at the Electric Circus. Quote, A young man with the moon and stars painted on his back soars overhead on a silver trapeze, and a ring juggler manipulates colored hoops and shaggy hippies who unconcernedly perform a pagan tribal dance. Strobe lights flicker over the dancers, breaking up their movements into a jerky parody of an old-time Chaplin movie. Unquote. An additional quote from April of 1966 from the New York Times. Patrons can, quote, grope their way to the dance floor in blackness that is broken only by hallucinatory flashes of multicolored lights in order to wriggle, writhe, and tremble to the music of the Velvet Underground. A four-piece band whose chanteuse is a fashion model who answers only to the name of Nico. Modeling is such a dull job, Nico said, tossing her flaxen mane. 
I don't care to get $60 an hour anymore. Unquote. <laughs> so, um, so this is the like glamorous remove of the 1960s Warhol world that would inhabit this place and mix in psychedelics, of course, not to mention this music, which would come to be quite influential. Okay, so there's psychedelic culture, there's music, there's dance. Fashion. Fashion, and then on the same street, you have counterculture and political activism. But that is here on St. Mark's Place. It isn't necessarily up one or two blocks or south one or two blocks. In fact, in the 60s and 70s, there is a bit of tension between St. Mark's and the sort of no-holds-barred, anything-goes, free-for-all the contrast of that with a neighborhood that is also largely made up of immigrants who have arrived from Eastern Europe, a large Ukrainian and Polish population, newly arriving Puerto Ricans, tending to be more conservative than the hijinks and the <laughs> right. uh, whatever is being dropped on St. Mark's I Place. I think we're all more conservative than a lot of the things that were <laughs> happening in 1960s on St. Mark's Place. The real estate dive that New York in the 1970s would experience would also hit the East Village quite hard. It would just make things worse for the neighborhood. Many apartment buildings, not necessarily on St. Mark's, but many in the East Village would be taken over by squatters, though St. Mark's would largely avoid that fate, which is kind of interesting. And maybe it avoided a lot of that because it had by that point also become kind of a tourist destination unto itself. Tourist buses would come over from the village, buses that would have before avoided the East Village, would come over to check out, drive along St. Mark's Place so that the tourists from Iowa and Ohio could take photos of, by the 1970s, the hippies hanging out on St. Mark's. There's, of course, a thriving bookstore culture, and even the jazz scene has arrived here on St. Mark's Place, principally through the five spot. Right, where Charlie Parker and Charles Mingus would play and others. That had been on Cooper Square, but it would be located on St. Mark's uh, from 1962 until 1975. But St. Mark's would not be defined by jazz, but rather by the early 1980s, you would most associate it with punk music. And so by the late 1970s and 80s, the influence of punk style would hit very hard on St. Mark's, you know, through these places, Trash and Vaudeville, Manic Panic, and other accessory stores that are, of course, still there today. You're most likely to even see the stars of punk music, like a Ramon walking down the street. Sometimes a Dee Dee Ramon would sell things on the street. The jewelry stores, the wig stores trace back to to this time period, right? And so, I mean, a variation of them are still there today. I wouldn't say that these funny hat stores are exactly what you would have seen in the early 80s, of course. But the bar and club life would also change, and there would be some very innovative places here in the 80s. One I want to highlight because I feel like if I could go back in time, Tom, to a place in St. Mark's Place, this is the place I would want to go. It was opened in 1978, 1979. I read a couple dates and only lasted to like 1983. It was called Club 57. And so this was actually on the the second block, the more residential block. Right. Between first and second. Right. Uh, In an old Polish church, 57th St. Mark's Place. I would describe this as a club version of the B-52's music group. If they were a club, Mm. this place is amazing. A sort of love shack? It is a love shack. As I actually described it on the blog, I wrote a story about this a few years ago because I've been enamored by it. It was, quote, an anti-disco, anti-glitz, dingy diamond of the early new wave era. A punk do-it-yourself romper room managed by budding performance artist Anne Magnuson. What it was known for were its kind of funky theme nights. Things like Lady Wrestling Night and its very popular Monster Movie Club every Tuesday. You know, back in the day when cult movies were just gaining popularity, this this idea of watching cheesy movies for enjoyment. Um, they even had a putt-putt reggae night. <laughs> Don't you want to go to that? Keith- Wait, where you would play putt-putt and dance? Sure. Of Why course. So- <laughs> I mean, I wish that places today had this kind of... Uh, charm to them like that had interesting you wanted things. to say joie de vivre joie de vivre yes um but i mean this attracted big names keith herring was a regular here cindy lopper 
uh, Fab Five Freddy, Klaus Nomi would perform here. Madonna would also be here. Now, judging from these names, you would imagine that the gay scene would also find certain homes here on St. Mark's Place. Right around the corner, of course, was a major club called The Saint that was over on 6th Street. But the same owner owned a bathhouse at 6 St. Mark's Place, so right next to the Schuyler House, actually. I read a flyer online that said it was the largest bathhouse in the world, according to one ad. It had actually opened as a Turkish bathhouse and then had been transformed into a popular cruising spot in the late 70s, early 80s. In the early years of the AIDS crisis in the early 80s, a lot of focus obviously turned to these bathhouses. So most of them were shut down. This particular one was closed in 1985. To be a little more upbeat, to move to the 90s, there was actually this great punk venue that I remember from my early years of of when I moved to New York called Coney Island High at 15 St. Mark's Place, which was owned by Jesse Mallon, who owns Niagara. Now, that's by Tompkins Square Park. But it was this rowdy place for punk and garage music in the 1990s. I mentioned I want to mention one place from the 1990s because it was shut down because of high rents. And, of course, that Giuliani crackdown of, of cabaret places that right. we unfortunately knew so well in the 1990s. Right. Suddenly a bar could be shut down if they permitted patrons to yeah. dance and they didn't have a um, cabaret license. And I want this to lead to one of my final points here, which is about the encroaching gentrification that has always kind of pressed against St. Mark's Place. Most notably to to many people as early as March 1988, when at the corner of St. Mark's and 2nd Avenue on the north side of the street, a theater was swept away and replaced with a gap. Mm. Shock. I mean, I remember, like, for for years, people being so scandalized by the fact that a Gap clothing store was now opening on St. Mark's Place. I read an article from the New York Times written by N.R. Kleinfeld from 1992. Quote, It was an odd day when, in March of 1988, a Gap store opened up in a space once occupied by the St. Mark's Cinema. People on St. Mark's Place laughed. What, they wondered, did the Gap have to say to the anarchistic spirit of St. Mark's Place? What was next? Bloomingdale's? (laughs) So, (laughs) cue the sad trombone, because, of course, Bloomingdale's would follow about, what, 15 years later on Lower Broadway (laughs) in Soho. (laughs) Um, But the crazy part is that Gap then actually has closed since then. Right. Um, and it's been replaced with, a, I think, a series of, of coffee shops and things. I think today it's a yogurt shop. So the Gap opened up in 1988, and that was just five years before you and I moved to, to New York. Yeah, we was, spent yeah. a lot of time on St. Mark's. Yeah, so, I mean, my very first place that I lived was in an NYU dorm up on 11th Street and 3rd Avenue because I was like, kind of shy, which is kind of ridiculous now considering what we do. But at the time, I only didn't go very far. So St. Mark's Place was right there. So I would explore St. Mark's Place and would be dazzled a little afraid of St. Mark's Place, probably. Mm. But I mean, there was a smell of incense in the air. Incense and just, you know, sideway, weird sideway glances from men with mohawks. But I mean, there were a couple places that I have just a deep fondness for when I think back at that. I think a lot of pla- a lot of people do places like Kim's Video, which had several locations, but have all since closed as of 2014. And I believe you mentioned earlier at the house of Daniel Leroy. Yes. From the 1830s. Which still exists. Well, that house still exists. And for many, many many years was a music store called Sounds, which I used to go to all the time. You would sell your used CDs there. It was that kind of a place. It was just like a big, crowded, cluttered place full of music. And that has since closed as well as of 2015. So the old Daniel Leroy house has will have to get another tenant. Mm. And I believe, Greg, that down a block between first and second on the north side of the street, you and I spent a lot of time... A lot of Sunday afternoons brunching in the backyard of the Yaffa Cafe. Yaffa, yes. Yaffa, which is no longer with us. <laughs> no longer there. It's becoming a downer. <laughs> What's going on here? And then down another block between A and First. Do you remember having um, many a fun cocktail and maybe a burger at the Stingy Lulu's? Oh, 
I totally forgot about that place. Yes. It, of course. Sinji Lulu's, yeah. Served by drag queens, right? Or am I making that up? Well, you might have been hallucinating that. No, <laughs> no I really think that they were drag queens. <laughs> we will fact check that. But I think it was. Well, and in fact, I lived at uh, 126 St. Mark's Place in 2000 for so a number of months. You're part of the living history. Living history on the... I don't know, fifth floor of a walk-up in the back and a tiny little room. It was great. And I'll tell you, being that age, just out of college, living on St. Mark's, you feel like you're in the middle of it all. You have easy access, easy walking access to everything in the East Village. I, I loved my time there. I want to make note of one more recent event that happened in the neighborhood that's very important to the history of the neighborhood, which was a terrible gas explosion that happened just a block away, just one block south on 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. This explosion killed two men and it destroyed three buildings and really brought home this notion, this concern of how fragile and interconnected this neighborhood is. All of these buildings are quite old, you know, Mm. up and down this whole area. I mean, there are very few new developments in this area still to this day. Businesses were really struggling for a time after the explosion, you know, trying to get people back around that area. A number of the other restaurants on the block were closed for many, many months, uh, including one of my very favorite restaurants on planet Earth, B&H Dairy, (laughs) where I had a bowl of lentil soup this very afternoon, Greg. Did you know that? Did I tell you that I had a bowl of lentil soup and challah bread sitting at the counter? It's like my favorite place in the world to be. And they reopened in August you know, it's it's also that feeling one has as a patron of a place that is an old school, fabulous New York institution. It fills you with appreciation, just knowing that they made it through and they need our support. So that is our story of St. Mark's Place from the beginning to present day. I want to thank fellow podcaster Billy Proceed of the Man Whore Podcast for giving us this idea, for this suggestion. And so for the rest of you out there, if you have any ideas that you would like to run by us for a future show, please email us or contact us through our Facebook or Twitter handle. Thanks, as always, to the more than 300 people who have joined us so far on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Your support is making it possible for us to double our production, and we are so grateful for you. You can head to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys and see the fun little incentives that we have for joining with your support. And for each episode of the Bowery Boys that comes out, we record a separate additional Patreon special download. So Greg, I think we're both looking forward to this next Patreon special download. We're Mm -hmm. going to be starting at one end of St. Mark's Place and walking to the other and talking about some of the places that we've just mentioned in today's show. You won't want to miss that show. So thank you very much for listening to this long and winding but intriguing story. Pretty straightforward. It's only three blocks. Imagine (laughs) if it was six blocks, we'd still be talking. (laughs) On that note... Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.